Well, it's great to be back. Kathy and I had a great time in Arizona at the Grand Canyon. We took a, a rafting trip, which is something we've never done before. Uh, we've never even been to the Grand Canyon before, which was funny. Uh, fun. <laughs> and funny. <laughs> but it was great. We, uh, <clears throat> we stayed at a camp, sort of as a, a prim- preliminary camp beforehand that kind of oriented us to what the... Thank you, Mike. What the... Uh, the trip was going to be like, and we got to sleep that night in a covered wagon, which was really neat. Have you ever slept in a covered wagon? It was nice. It was still, it like wasn't moving with a horse and everything. But it was really fun, and then they helicoptered our group from the camp down to the Colorado River where our rafts were waiting. And for three days, we went down the Colorado River. And it's, I could describe it sort of like this. Um, imagine floating with a life jacket on through the desert of Arizona in a 100-degree temperature, maybe a 90-degree temperature, and occasionally being doused by 50-degree water. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> really was fun. Seriously. And the, um, the stars at night were just beautiful. Big and bright, even in Arizona. Yeah. But just in case you hadn't wondered, the Milky Way is still there. <laughs> Got to see it. And one of the things we did as we, st- as we stopped along the way, and, you know, the, the raft would stop and we kind of get out, and it was from the, the perspective of creation. It was not an evolution a rafting trip, but it was led by a ministry that focuses on teaching creation and how creation connects with all the strata that you can clearly see there in the Grand Canyon. So that was wonderful. And one of the places we stopped, we would do hikes. And one of the hikes, we were walking around, and the way it works is you're walk, you walk and you step on rocks. That's how you hike. Have you done that lately? Well, I thought it was a rock. <laughs> but it was actually about, you know, a huge ball of lightly compacted sand. Turns out if you put all your weight on lightly compacted sand, it disintegrates. And I fell about, I don't want to exaggerate, two, at least two, three feet, which doesn't sound like a lot. But if you're not anticipating that and you land on your ribs, well, so I cracked a rib. And I didn't realize it until... Uh, about a day later because I'd done it years earlier and I thought you know what it's cracked again so don't make me laugh and don't touch me okay (laughs) oh breathing hurts honestly sometimes it's just amazing so I don't recommend a cracked rib but the best part about well not the best part but one of the fun parts about our trip was at the end of it when we were in the airport Kathy was uh, going to the bathroom or getting a drink or doing something, but she wasn't with me at the moment that I sat down in the lounge waiting for our airplane. And there was hardly anybody in the lounge. And so there was a guy, you know, I could clearly see he was sitting there, you you know, working on his phone. And so I sat in front of him with, and he was, my back was to him, so I couldn't see him. But I was probably there, I don't know, maybe two, three minutes. And all of a sudden I started hearing sounds like this. Uh, 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 and I thought, well, you know, the guy's got breathing issues. Uh, that's fine. And then it got worse. It was like, and I thought, I wonder if he's doing that on purpose because it's like, why would anybody make those sounds? And then it got even worse. It started to sound sort of like the Tasmanian devil from Bugs Bunny. It wasn't quite that bad, but there was snorting, snarling, and finally I turned around, and the guy had a bulldog underneath his seat. (laughs) Oh, it was so funny. I thought it was him. Turns out it was his comfort dog that he was bringing along. It, is a, it was really funny. I mean, I seriously thought it was the guy, and it was his bulldog. <laughs> but, you know, things are not always what they seem. 
Um, you think it's a guy snarling and having breathing problems, and no, it's a bulldog doing what bulldogs do. Things are not always what they seem. And that really actually plays right into what we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 13. Mark 13. All throughout the book of Mark, so far, we've seen the growing opposition to Jesus from the very beginning. Um, It hasn't taken long after Jesus showed up on the scene and began to announce and offer the kingdom of God to Israel that the leaders of Israel looked at Christ and the miracles that he was doing by the power of the Holy Spirit and saying, you're doing those miracles by the power of Satan. And Jesus, recognizing that, began to withdraw from offering the kingdom to Israel less and less and began to prepare now his disciples for the time of the the age of the church. And we walk through all those chapters, particularly 8 through 10, where Jesus is trying to teach his disciples what it's like to be a servant. It's really the theme for the book of Mark, and it's really what Mark drives home in those chapters as he's teaching the disciples and teaching us as well what it's like to truly be great. To truly be great is to be a servant like Jesus. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, he said, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Well, Jesus knew they would reject his offer of the kingdom, and so the last time we were together in Mark chapter 12, we saw this conflict, this opposition, come to a head. And Jesus has his final, uh, you know, conversation or, or conflict, really, with the religious leaders in Mark chapter 12, and they went back and forth, and we looked at those arguments that, that they had, and finally, they had no more questions. They could ask no more questions to Jesus, because he stumped them every time. And so Jesus now, having left the temple, in chapter 13, we get into what is called the Olivet Discourse. It is uh, called that because Jesus gave it on the Mount of Olives. And if you've ever been to Israel, been to Jerusalem, then you can picture easily standing on the Mount of Olives, looking over the Kidron Valley at the Temple Mount that's right there in front of you. This would be the vantage that Jesus and his apostles had here in Mark chapter 13. So let's dive into this, uh, this great, great chapter. Verse 1. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Literally, the original language says that not one stone will certain or not one stone will certainly not be left upon another. It's very emphatic in the original language. And once again, if you go to Jerusalem, when you go to Jerusalem, if you've not been, it is God's will for you to go to Israel. <laughs> I mean, we'll all go eventually, so, but it'd be a great benefit to you to go uh, before your free trip when Jesus takes you there. <laughs> when you go to Jerusalem, you'll be able to go down to the southwest corner of the Temple Mount and look at the original street that they've uncovered from the first century, the paving stones from the time of Christ, which have been crushed in by the stones that were thrown down from above, and and they fell on the street and literally crushed some of the pavement. But you can see the original stones and then the, the paved stones there that have been crushed in fulfillment of what Jesus says when he said that not one stone will be left upon another. And sometimes people are confused when they go there and they see... You know, the western wall is still standing. I thought one stone not left upon another. Well, he meant the temple. The temple is not going to have one stone left upon another, and it doesn't. They were all thrown down. In fact, you can see a pile of those stones in that street, that, that original street that I mentioned. Sometimes history serves as prophecy, and we'll see that several times throughout this chapter. But Um, the disciples in many ways were sort of uh, thick, you might say, sort of dull in their thinking. But we would be too if we were there. They didn't have Paul to explain the church age yet or the rapture, 
And even though they had the Apostle John standing there with them, he was more concerned about sitting at the right or the left of Jesus than he was about the book of Revelation. So they had a long way to go in their understanding of end times or eschatology and frankly God's program for Israel and even the church. They, they were clueless about God's plan and understandably so. All they had at this point was the Old Testament and their interpretation of the Old Testament. The church doesn't conflict with the Old Testament, it's just that the Old Testament didn't, didn't talk about the church. It was a, it's a mystery. The Apostle Paul called it, and Jesus refers to it in a similar fashion. So the disciples are justifiably confused. When they hear Jesus say that, that not one stone is going to be left upon another, that's not going to be torn down, wait a minute, Lord, what about this kingdom that you've been offering? What about the kingdom that you've been promising? And really, what about our seats in it? And so they have questions for Christ, and they pull him aside as they cross the Kidron Valley and sit on the Mount of Olives and ask him a couple of questions. Look at verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Sometimes, as I said, history serves as prophecy. What do, what do I mean by that? Well, if you look, if you just think for a second through the Gospels, when Matthew, who, who often talks about this was occurred in order to fulfill Scripture, a really odd fulfillment of Scripture is when he quotes uh, from the Old Testament and says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And this is fulfillment. That, that was the fulfillment of Jesus coming out of Egypt as a child. Out of Egypt, I'd call myself. Wait a minute, that's talking about the Exodus. So somehow the Lord used the Exodus, as, which was history, as prophetic of Jesus leaving Egypt at, when he was a child. So sometimes I say history serves as prophecy. But here's the deal. We can't willy-nilly go assigning history to prophecy. We have to allow the Word of God to do that for us. So when God's Word assigns history as a prophetic, a, a historical event becoming a prophetic event, God's Word has the prerogative to do that. Of course, we don't. We have to sit in submission to it. And the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, Jesus is going to use what occurred in A.D. 70. Historically, the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. But that became prophetic, that historical event became prophetic of a greater destruction that Jesus is going to talk about at length here in Mark chapter 13. They ask him a couple of questions, two questions really. Some say three, but really uh, you, could do, you could put two of them together as really one. And the two questions are these, when and what? When and what? And it's right there in the text. When will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are going to occur? And so Jesus answers the second question first, and he does it in a couple of ways, one from a negative perspective and then from a positive perspective. So let's look at both. First, the negative perspective, starting in verse 5. This is answering the question, what will be the sign that all these things are going to be fulfilled? Verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now there are all different flavors of vanilla on this chapter and the Olivet Discourse as Jesus talks about prophecy to come. Typically we approach it and say, okay, here's my system. How does Jesus' words fit in my system? Rather than looking at the text and saying, what does the text get, say? Now let's derive our system from that. And even in the prophet, even in the circles that 
we typically have here at Stonebriar Church and many of us who have gone through and studied at Dallas Seminary, look at the view of the kingdom of God, which Jesus has been talking about, as what we call premillennial. That is, that Jesus is going to come back before the millennial kingdom or before the kingdom that he offers to Israel or that there is actually a kingdom, a future for Israel. And even in our circles, there are a variety of opinions on this chapter. So I want to say that up front, and I'm not claiming to have it all buttoned up, but I, I want to walk through this together and let's just see what the text says and then make the best sense of it that we can, allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture rather than our system to interpret Scripture. What is, what is Jesus talking about here? Um, well, we know as from Paul's letters that we're not waiting on anything else before the rapture of the church. And the rapture of the church, or Jesus coming back to take Christians out of the world, the resurrection of all Christians, both those who have already died and those of us who are alive, um, will occur at an event that we call the rapture, which means to be caught up. And that can happen any moment. We're not waiting for any prophetic event. We're not waiting for anything else to happen before the rapture. And so that being the case, I take it when Jesus starts to talk about these signs that aren't signs. In other words, he's saying, don't be confused. Don't be misled. You're going to see earthquakes. You're going to see wars, rumors of wars. That's not a sign of anything uh, as far as the end. These things must take place, he says in verse 7, but that is not the end. So don't, don't see all the earthquakes that are happening in history and think that it's a sign of something. Christ says it isn't. It's not. So first of all, he talks about what isn't a sign of his coming. All these things, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, wars, famines, these are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, Keep your finger here in Mark 13 and slip back to Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. And I want to show you something that is one of the, the strongest, I believe, reasons why we can believe in a premillennial position, but not only that, uh, what's also called a pre tribulation position, that is, that, that Christians are not going to go through the tribulation period, that we'll be raptured out before the seven years of tribulation. Daniel chapter 9, look at verse 24. I'm not going to read a lot of this. You can, make a, you can do a whole series of messages on this section, but there's one thing I want you to see in particular. Daniel 9, 24. It says, 70 weeks... Uh, have been decreed for your people. Daniel is receiving this prophecy. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. And then he goes on to talk about all the details of what's going to happen. But the details that I want you to notice here are you've got 70 weeks, and as we interpret that, with Scripture interprets, interpreting Scripture, we understand that that represents uh, 490 years. 490 years. And the prophecy that goes on in verse 25 talks about what's going to happen after 483 of those years. So we've got seven years left. And the seven years that are left, we understand from the book of Revelation and from Daniel, from a number of places, is referring, that seven years that's left is referring to the Great Tribulation, which is still yet future. But I mention that to say that it says 490 years, verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for whom? For your people and your holy city. Your people, that's the Jews. Your holy city, that's Jerusalem. These 490 years, including the last seven, the tribulation, is not for the church. It's for Israel. And it's for specifically for the Jews and for Jerusalem. So, back to Mark 13. When we talk about 
this section of time that Jesus is talking about, which includes the Great Tribulation period, that seven years, understand the disciples aren't thinking church at all. And so when Jesus is teaching them, he is not including the church in this, this uh, era, this uh, chapter. Uh, people disagree with that, and that's fine. But if, if we go with that we're in this, <laughs> this section, then we've got other scriptures that we have to contend to from the Thessalonian epistles that talk about how we're not destined for wrath. And the book of Revelation talking about how God will preserve us from the time of judgment that will come upon the whole world, clearly the, the, uh, the time of tribulation. So Daniel t says that it's for the Jews and for Jerusalem. And so I take it that is what Jesus is talking about here in Mark 13. So let's continue now. Verse 9. Jesus says, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts. And you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what, you're, what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Again, what happens in history in this instance also proves prophetic. He's speaking to the disciples, and the disciples were indeed persecuted, just as they were described here. But that also looks forward, this also looks forward to the time in the tribulation period, which the book of Revelation talks about, uh, where those who believe in the Messiah are going to be persecuted, and these things are going to happen to them as well. Um, verse 10, where it says, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Remember what gospel means. In fact, Keep your hand there in Mark 13 and look at Mark chapter 1. We've looked at this a few times, but it's very important to keep in context what Mark means when Mark says gospel, particularly in the context of Jesus talking about the kingdom here in Matthew, uh, uh, Mark 13. But Mark chapter 1, look at verse 14 and 15. These are Jesus's, this is spoken of Jesus and Jesus's words. It says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the word gospel, when we, think, when we hear gospel, we think of a gospel singer. We think of the gospel like, you know, believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll go to heaven. But the word gospel simply means good news, and it can be used in a variety of ways. Mark is using it to talk about, in chapter 1, clearly it is the good news of the kingdom, that Jesus is coming to Israel offering the kingdom. And so when, back in Mark 13, when it says that the gospel must first be preached to all the nations, it's talking about the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not just pulling out of, that out of my ear. Uh, Mark says it, but also Matthew in the parallel passage refers to this as the gospel of the kingdom. And so it's not simply the gospel as you and I think of it. This isn't the Great Commission. This is uh, the particular mention of Jesus as the Messiah to Israel offering the kingdom. And so what he's basically saying is the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom is going to be preached to all the nations, Matthew adds, as a witness to them. And Mark says it here just before that when he says you will be a witness to all the, the people that you talk to, the governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. So just as Israel was prepared in the first coming of Christ, the kingdom is at hand. So before the second coming of Christ, Israel's going to get that same message. That's the point. 
And it's good news. It, it's good news that's proclaimed not just to, to Israel, but it is proclaimed as a witness to the whole world. And not before our present age, in the last hundred years or so, before talking to the world was actually a possibility, has this been a potential. And yet, here it is. Here it is. So the, the possibility is there. And it's amazing when you think about it, too. You've got Israel was not a nation or a state officially prior to 1947-48. Now, for some of us, that's a long time ago. But in God's grand plan, that was yesterday. That happened just, what, 78 years, 70 years ago? That's not very long ago in God's plan. Think about all that's transpired in the last 100 years. The technology that has amazingly advanced the communication possibilities that now exist that weren't even here 100 years ago. 100 years ago, we were still riding horses. And now, all of a sudden, we've got self-driving cars, though I'm not going to get in one. <laughs> even a horse can't drive itself unless it's headed for the barn, and then you're in good shape. So. Then Jesus makes this statement, and it is a bit of a head-scratcher. He who endures to the end will be saved. Again, what is the end? The end is back when you talk about the, the, the context here, the end is the coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth to bring in his kingdom. The end will come. He who endures to the end. This isn't talking about salvation by works, that if you can just somehow stay faithful to the coming of Christ, then you'll be saved. It doesn't mean salvation in that sense. It's speaking of, I, th I think it's talking about a physical salvation. Basically, those who endure, who, stand, who stay faithful to the end, and who aren't martyred. There are, in the book of Revelation, there are many faithful who are martyred. So it says they'll be saved, by the coming of Christ. And it goes on in just a little bit here in verse 20 and talks about no life would have been saved if, if the Lord had not cut short those days. And I think that's what it's talking about in verse 13 as well. So Christ has given what aren't signs in these verses in 5 through 13. Now he tells us what is a sign. So when they ask him, that question, what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? In other words, what is the sign of your coming? Jesus answers first what isn't. Don't be deceived by all these things. These aren't, necess these aren't signs. Now he says what is a sign. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or Behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. The coming of Christ occurs just before, it, we're told, Jesus gathers the elect. And again, if you cross-reference Matthew's gospel, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 27, and Isaiah 27 is talking about Israel. So Jesus is talking about gathering together the elect of Israel, those true believers in the Messiah. And it says not only uh, gathering from the four corners of the earth, but also from the end of heaven, the ends of heaven. So this is talking about not simply those who are alive on the earth, but also the resurrection of Old Testament saints. Why? Because Christ is about to come, 
the kingdom is about to come and the, the long-awaited promise for all the Old Testament is about to be fulfilled. The thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth is about to happen. So he resurrects those Old Testament saints to enter into the kingdom. And we aren't told here because the church isn't the subject, but we're told in Revelation chapter 19 that we also will be part of this, that we'll come back with Christ because we're in heaven at this time, and we will come back with Christ, and we will be part of this thousand-year reign with Christ on earth. It's not the subject of Mark 13, but I throw that in just to know we're part of the plan, though it doesn't discuss us here. So, the abomination of desolation. Uh, all kinds of signs going on here. This is a sign. Uh, a sign occurred in history, second century before Christ, Antiochus Epiphanes desecrates the temple, and this uh, actually becomes sort of a, a prefigure, prehistorical figure, sort of like out of Egypt I called my son. That bit of history becomes prophecy of something in the future. What Antiochus did to Israel becomes prophecy of what the Antichrist will do in the time of the tribulation. Um, Daniel talks about that. In Daniel chapter 9, we didn't read on to talk about the abomination and desolation, but that's what's referred to. If you'll notice in verse 14, abomination of desolation is in quotes, or it should somehow indicate that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. So, Obviously, there is no temple right now for the Antichrist to set himself up in. We're told in, in Daniel that he will set himself up in the temple, and we're also told in 2 Thessalonians that the man of lawlessness will set himself up in temple. The Antichrist will set himself up in the temple to be worshipped as God. So you need a temple for that to happen, and there's no temple in Jerusalem right now. Plenty of space for it. Uh, the Dome of the Rock, that Muslim sh shrine, is kind of a placeholder. It's just kind of guarding the spot until it's time. Now, could it be built next to it? You know, it could. Uh, but if you look at archaeology, I, I don't know that we need to get too fussy about where the temple will be in the tribulation period because it's not the temple of God anyway. It's the Antichrist uh, temple trying to placate Israel and make a covenant with them that he can then break, stand in the temple and say, I'm God, worship me. The temple for the kingdom of God um, is probably going to do away with that Muslim shrine. If, you wanna, if you're a betting person, I would say that's probably not going to be there during the kingdom of God. But the temple institute in Jerusalem, when you go to Jerusalem today and you walk up the long staircase from the Western Wall Plaza up into the Jewish quarter, it's a long staircase that you'll walk up there. And at the top of that staircase is a place called the Temple Institute. This is a group of Jews who have prepared all the furniture necessary for the next temple. You walk in there and you can see a golden menorah that's worth millions of dollars. I mean, the thing stands as tall as a man. It's huge. And they have all the furniture ready to go, ready for the next temple. And it's, uh, it's exciting. Um, I, I hope that it's not for the, and I mean this, I hope it's not for the temple of, of the Antichrist. But um, anyway, the Temple Institute is ready. They're eager for this temple to be built. And this second part of the Tribulation, what Jesus refers to in verse 14 with this very strong contrast. When you see the abomination of desolation standing, we're told that when this happens, this is halfway through that seven years. And so there's been three and a half years of peace with Israel, and now the Antichrist comes in and demands that he be worshipped and begins what's called the Great Tribulation. This is why Jesus says, when you see this happening, get out of town because it's time for persecution. And he lists all these different things. If you're on the top of the house, don't even go back in the house. If you're in the field, don't go back to get your coat. Woe to those who are pregnant. I mean, have you ever seen a pregnant woman run? That's why Jesus says, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing babies in those days. It's not easy to move fast when you're like that. 
Uh, pray that it may not happen in winter. Why? Because it rains and everything's muddy. You can't get around. If you, he's saying that persecution is going to come in those, those days, verse 19, a time of tribulation that has not occurred since the beginning of creation. When you see this sign, the abomination of desolation, when you see the Antichrist set himself up in the temple saying, I'm God, worship me, get out of town. Hide, flee, because persecution is about to happen. That's what Christ is saying. And then finally, Christ comes. Look at verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will, will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. So once again, the coming of Christ here is referred to Jesus gathering his elect, resurrecting the Old Testament saints. If you look at Isaiah chapter 27, verse 13, just mark that in your margin if it's not already written there as a great cross-reference to this. And, of course, this is also where we, as the church, slip in in Revelation 19. So all of that answers the question, what? What are the signs? So first he says, what are not the signs? And then he says, here's the sign to look for. When you see the Antichrist standing in the temple, you can know. We're halfway through the tribulation period and get out of town because the persecution is about to begin. So all of that answers the what question. Now Jesus answers the when question. When will these things be? That's the first question they asked. And it's a very short answer. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, Recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Nobody knows when the prophetic clock is going to start again. We're told that not even Jesus, the Son, knows this. Um, which is amazing, isn't it? You think of Christ and His incredible humility. When He took on human flesh, He willingly chose, Philippians chapter 2 talks about this at length, He willingly chose to not exercise some of His divine attributes, particularly omnipresence. When you are now forever in a body, you are not omnipresent. He chose to set that aside in order to become a man. Still fully God, but now he has chosen in submission to the Father to limit some of his, uh, of his actions on his deity. Um, and this is another one. He has chosen not to know this, which is amazing. Only the Father. The angels don't know it. The Son doesn't know it. And you know what? If that's true, then we don't know it. In the year 999, Pope Sylvester announced the second coming of Christ. And many Christians gave their possessions to the church and traveled to holy places. But, alas. 1534, the Anabaptists of Germany declared that the second coming was coming. And they barricaded themselves in. They were eventually starved out and their leaders all killed. 1843, an American farmer named William Miller predicted the end of the world would happen that year on March 21st. And these Millerites all gathered on the top of a hill waiting for Jesus and the angels. It didn't happen. And so you know what he said? Well, he revised it and he says it's going to be 11 years later. Well, it wasn't. It, this became known as the Great Disappointment. <laughs> it's an understatement. I heard a joke about an elderly man who lay dying in his bed, and he was only expected to live another day or two. And as he was laying there, groaning and moaning, 
He smelled from the kitchen downstairs chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> These are his favorite chocolate chip cookies. So he gathers his strength to get out of bed, grabs his cane, works his way over to the banister, gets down the stairs, makes it to the kitchen, and spread out on the kitchen island are dozens of his favorite chocolate chip cookies. He makes his way over to the island and he reaches out his trembling hand. And he thinks, my wife has made me these as my final wish. And he reaches out to grab a cookie and his wife smacks his hand with a spatula. Whap! She says, don't touch those. They're for the funeral. <laughs> yeah, that's a great disappointment, isn't it? The man should have known that death was near because his wife was preparing for what would take place afterwards. Same is true for us. We don't know when the prophetic clock will start again. For us, we know that's the rapture. In fact, the rapture begins, the seven-year tribulation, halfway through that. I mean, we can start the clock once the rapture happens because we know, boom, seven years, halfway through, the end of seven years, Jesus comes back, thousand-year reign. I mean, we can st events start happening after the rapture. But when is that going to happen? We don't know. We have no clue when that's going to happen. Um, I heard John Walvert explain it this way, and I love this explanation. He said, you know that it's almost time for Thanksgiving when you see the Christmas decorations in the mall. <laughs> right? You're walking around in the mall and you see Christmas decorations right after Halloween. And you start seeing Halloween decorations right after, I don't know, we don't have a, I mean, it comes early. It's all about marketing. But Walbert's point is a great point, that you can see what's happening next, or you can kind of get an idea, not a hard and fast line, because remember, God's clock is a big clock, but you can sort of get an idea of what's coming next by seeing what's happening. You see Christmas decorations, you know it's almost time for Thanksgiving. Jesus says, when you see in the tribulation these specific signs, you know that the time is near. Paul says a very similar thing in 2 Thessalonians. In fact, he tells them there, you know you're not in the tribulation, first of all, because I told you you won't go through it. But second of all, if you were in the tribulation, you'd be seeing the man of lawlessness, and he's not there. So for Jesus not to know when this is going to happen is talking about his, his choice to not know when the great prophetic clock is going to start again. And if Jesus doesn't know, then we don't know either. In fact, Jesus says this generation, verse 30, will not pass away. What does he mean there? He, he, he can't mean the generation meaning those alive at that time because they have all passed away. The word generation can also mean race, and I hope in your margin that it says that. If not, understand that. That word can also mean race. And Christ referring to the Jews, the Jewish race, is not it's not going to be extinguished until all these things happen because God's got plans and promises for the Jews. In fact, I remember hearing about uh, Frederick the Great of Prussia was asked his court chaplain, I think, don't quote me on that, but I know it was Frederick the Great, said, uh, prove to me that the Bible is true. And whoever it was he asked said, the Jews. That was the answer. The longevity of the Jews. I mean, look at how these people have survived in spite of all that they've gone through. Because God has plans for them. God has a promise and a future. And it's related, as Daniel said, for your people and your holy city. Jerusalem, we still know where that is. We know exactly where that is. And more and more things are being discovered with archaeology. So if this is for Israel's future, how in the world do we apply this? Uh, we apply it the same way we apply much of the Old Testament, to be honest, which wasn't written to us. And yet, Paul says that things, these things were written for our example, that we might learn from them. And so we can, through Mark chapter 13, look at the timeless principles here and glean what we can apply for our own lives. And Jesus gives us a great example of this 
in the very next verse. You can't miss it. Verse 33. He says, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's a great application, isn't it? If Jesus doesn't know, then we don't know. And so the application then is take heed, keep on the alert. And he says keep on the alert a number of times throughout this passage. In fact, we'll see it in a couple more times in the verses coming up. But he has also said take heed a few times before this. Jesus is asking us to pay attention, to not bury our head in the sand, to not go to sleep, as it were. In fact, he illustrates this, uh, this command in verse 34. He gives us a parable that is unique to the book of Mark. No one else says this. Verse 34, Jesus says, It's like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Christ says it a number of times. We can't miss it. Be on the alert. Now, there will be those in the tribulation period that will be able to apply this. But the general principle from this, we can also apply, because it is also true of us. We don't know when when the prophetic clock is going to start again, do we? We have no clue when it's going to happen. But one thing we can do in obedience to Christ is not, uh, not fall asleep, as it were, to use, his, um, to use his metaphor. You don't know when the Master's coming. You don't want him to find you asleep. Paul uses a similar uh, command uh, when he writes in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In fact, he uses the same verb, be on the alert. It doesn't mean you don't sleep, but what it means is you don't sleep on the job. Christ has given us a job to do. You doing your job? Am I doing my job? We need to be on the alert. The master could come at any time to get things rolling once again. Listen, don't turn there, just listen as I read from Psalm chapter 2. All the whole psalm refers to the second coming of Jesus when the people on the earth are told what's going to happen if they don't trust in the one who's coming. Listen to Psalm 2, starting at verse 10. It's the last few verses of the psalm. It says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, or literally, kiss the Son. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Isn't that great? Especially that last line. You got two options. His wrath may soon be kindled. That's option one. Option two, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. You know, when we read prophecy, God has not predicted the future just to satisfy our curiosity. He has predicted the future to give us a confidence so that when it happens, we know that it's him talking. We can have a confidence that God, what God has said in Mark chapter 13, what Christ has said in Mark 13, is going to happen because the prophecies in the past that he has predicted have come true and none of them have faltered. So if he's been good on his word in the past, we know that he can be good on his word in the future. And we're told that there are two options here to do homage to the Son, or to face the wrath of God who's coming. Christ's challenge to us is to prepare today for a certain future. Um, There are a lot of people in our class. Many of you I know. Some of you I don't know. And even those of you I know, I only know what I know. You know, I don't know what I don't know. I hope that's clear. (laughs) But only you know whether or not if you were to die in this moment or if Christ were to return, how you would stand before him. I hope 
that you don't leave this room without taking an opportunity to accept Jesus Christ if you have not. Because the good news is he has come to take away all of your sin. That was the purpose of his first coming, one of the major purposes of it, is to come and to die for your sins and to rise again to show that your sins are paid for. The wrath that is coming doesn't have to come on you. That's the good news. But it is coming. And there is no reason that you would have to leave today if you don't know Jesus personally. If you are not absolutely certain that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I urge you to do so right now while we pray together. So let's do that. And as we bow, I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 9 to get us started in our prayer. Hebrews 9 verse 27 begins, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. Our Father, your word tells us that all of us die once, and after that comes judgment. And also that Jesus is going to appear a second time, not like he did the first time to bear away sin, but to come a second time to judge sin. And so, Lord, if there are any here today who do not know you, would you wrap your arms around them? Would you let them know, no matter what they've done, as bad as they may think it is, that Jesus died for them and that their sins may be forgiven simply by saying, Lord Jesus, save me. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead. Save me. And for those of us who have already made that commitment to you, Father, may we do what Jesus has said here. Nobody knows except you, Lord, when Jesus is coming. And in the meantime, help us to be awake, to be alert, to not sleep on the job, but to be found faithful, even if he should come today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.